Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Well, if you're new to New Spring, you won't know this. If you've been here for any part of the almost, well, going on 38 years that I've been here, you know that I've never been political in the sense of partisan politics for reasons that'll be obvious in this message. But there are times when the politicians get in my yard. I can remember a time, and many of you can't remember this because our world has changed and our politics have become so toxic. Many of us can remember a time where left and right had to do with things like the budget, um, military involvement, funding for various projects, and just how the states were going to interact and what the federal government was going to do. But in the last few decades, the politicians have begun to encroach on things, and I should say not just politicians, but judges, maybe judges especially. They begin to encroach on things that threaten the very existence of the order that God established. And when that happens, I must speak. And someone will say, I don't think that we should have God enter into these things. Well, then Jesus is not your Lord. You're like a Hindu, you've got a lot of gods. But if Jesus is your Lord, and it's an issue that God has established, if God cannot speak into that because of your political party, or because of your union, or because of your political action committee, then that's Lord of your life. So I really do believe that's something for all of us to remember, starting with me. Now, there will be some who will say that Paul in the Bible and others in the first century did not challenge the political status quo in their day. But there's a huge quantum distinction. And it is that they lived in a totalitarian society. We, on the other hand, live in a democracy. So consequently, you and I are responsible for the shape America's in. In fact, we will be responsible if we don't do the responsible thing. We shall answer to God for it because we are a democracy. Well, I don't need to tell you there's an election in our state this week, a very unusual one. In fact, I would say it's the most unusual election of my lifetime. And it has to do with abortion. And it kind of comes down to, I guess, according to the signs that I see, it comes down to yes or no. And the people who vote yes will say that the people of Kansas will get to have their voices heard through their elected officials as to what abortion law should be. Those who vote no will say that no, the people should not have a voice, that judges will continue to decide for us how abortion should be regulated or legal or illegal. Now, I want you to know, and as I said, old-time old Newspringers will know this, I'm not here to tell you what to do. I mean, it would be meaningless if I did. That's not my job. My job is to instruct. And I will, I'm well cognizant of the fact that when you and I walk into the voting booth, and I do hope you will vote, that when we walk into the voting booth, you can make any choice you want to make. You are an American citizen and a citizen of Kansas. But in a few moments, I'll be sharing with you what Mary Alice and I are going to do and how we came to that decision. 
But what I want, don't want to do today, and I don't want to offend anybody, but what I don't want to do today is get caught up in a battle of signs. <clears throat> don't get me wrong. I certainly understand why people want to make their position know, known, and I applaud that. It deserves applause. But what troubles me as a pastor is that so often the decision gets reduced down to, I'm for, I'm against, and then it becomes us versus them. And when it does, something is very precious to me gets lost. And that's the ability to influence hearts. And I always wonder, where is the discussion? Maybe it's because I'm a child of the late 60s and early 70s. You know, for those of you who would say, Mark, I am part of the left today, and you may even celebrate the 60s, let me just tell you from people who were in the 60s, we would have thought what's going on today in our culture is insane because we were all about the free market of ideas and the expression of different thought. Today, there's a whole generation out there, they think that they're free thinkers, but they're part of a fundamentalist religion. If someone cannot hear another viewpoint, <laughs> I just want you to know from a philosophical, even psychological standpoint, that's not free thought, that's, that's fundamentalism. Don't whine about religion, you're part of a religion. I grew up in an era where there was free discussion, there was free thought, there was the free flow of thought. So for a few moments, I'd like for us just to talk about what's happening this week, what's at stake, but most of all, and here's what I think you're going to discover, I'm going to be talking about a much bigger picture than the election this week. But let's talk about that first. Because the one thing I've discovered in my long blessed life is that in the echo chamber of political sound bites, one of the first things to be lost is meaningful history. Or how did we get here? So let's talk about that for a few minutes. Before 1973, abortion laws, as they existed, were in the hands of elected officials. States and localities determined how abortion was going to be regulated. There are those who have the idea that Roe versus Wade made abortion legal. It did not. Abortion was already legal in various places around the United States. It's just that there, there were all kinds of laws set forward by the people through their elected representatives how it was going to be monitored. And if the people felt that change needed to be made, they could make their wills known at the ballot box. But in 1973, it all changed. A woman in Texas, given the pseudonym Jane Roe, was pregnant. Now, I'll tell you how they picked the name Jane Roe. They would have normally used the word Doe, as in John Doe, but... The lawyers were kind of, I think, this is just my opinion, they were sort of judge shopping. So they had several trial cases that they were hoping to find a judge who would be sympathetic to their cause. And there was already a case in Dallas County called Doe's versus Wade. So they needed another word for anonymity and they picked the name or the word Roe, Jane Roe. Well, as I said, she was pregnant, wanted to enter pregnancy. And she ultimately was picked to be the test case to challenge Texas law. The district attorney at that time in Dallas County was a guy named Henry Wade of the Kennedy assassination fame. Thus the case, Roe versus Wade. Well, it took three years to work through the Supreme Court, but when it did, the Supreme Court decided that abortion was legal in all 50 states. And from that point on, and never missed this distinction, this is huge. I mean, prior, prior to Roe, 
The idea was that if there, the burden of proof was on the person who wanted to get an abortion, did they qualify for the exemptions? But after Roe, the burden of proof was not, only, was not on the person who was seeking an abortion. The burden of proof began to be on the states and localities. And if there was to be any restriction, as I say, the burden was on the states. Well, how did the Supreme Court justices arrive at that decision? Well, there are a lot of things about the way Roe decided that were interesting. For one thing, the judges knew that they had to pick a point up to which abortions could happen without restriction. There was obviously nothing in the Constitution, and since they were in the uncharted territory of playing God, it was decided that the test would be, and I put quotes or quotations around this word, viability. Viability in that situation means in the opinion of the attending physician, the baby could live outside the mother's body. But the judges knew that there would be arguments about that. Different physicians would say different things in different states. And so they had to come up with some kind of standard. And that's where we got into our culture, the word trimester in regard to abortion, because they decided that we had to determine some spot in a pregnancy where abortion could not be challenged. So how did they come to that decision? I mean, the larger question for a lot of your attorneys or you involved in law, how did they come to that decision legally? Where did they find the legal basis for that decision? Well, surprisingly for some of us, you need to know that the right to privacy is not explicit in our constitution. So the court engaged in some legal gymnastics with the 9th and 14th amendments and cobbled together out of that an implied right to privacy and a, quote, right to abortion. And that's where we've been for the last 50 years. And abortion has still been a hot-button issue. Every election, at least in my lifetime, every presidential election, Roe has always been front and center. And Lord knows, every time a judge is nominated to the Supreme Court, with all the issues that challenge us in the United States, most of the discussion is about abortion and Roe. Which side will a judge vote on? And that's been the debate. And you, you've heard it, you know it. If you've lived any length of time, you know that one side would say, don't touch Roe, it's settled law. Of course, on, that, on the premise of that argument, Dred Scott was settled law. In 1857, the Supreme Court decided that no African-American could be a citizen. The Constitution of the United States did not afford citizenship to any African-American, free or slave. Well, in 1860, dread was sound law. So on one side, there was the argument, don't touch Roe, it's sound law. On the other side, there were those who would say Roe was always junk law. And what we're talking about here is killing babies. One thing is certain, over 60 million babies have been aborted since Roe in the United States. And now to Kansas. In 2015, the Kansas legislature, the representatives of the people, passed the Kansas Unborn Child Protection from Dismemberment Abortion Act. 
But in 2016, Kansas, the Court of Appeals, rendered it unconstitutional, claiming that the state's Bill of Rights guaranteed a right to abortion. It is very interesting how those arguments were played out in the Court of Appeals. One side said that the first two planks of the Kansas Constitution gave a right to abortion. The other side said in 1859, when the Kansas Constitution was written, abortion was largely illegal. How could the first two planks offer a right to abortion? But the Kansas Supreme Court validated that. But now on Tuesday, for the first time in my lifetime, the public has a right, the people, the people have a right to speak into it, to determine, not, not anything specific about abortion, but just to determine, shall the people have the opportunity to speak to this issue or will it be taken out of the people's hands and turned over to judges? But I think we need to consider a second question. And here's one that I don't hear asked very often. Why do so many people want to take it out of the people's hands? Why are there so many that never want the public to ever speak into the subject of abortion? A yes vote will not make abortion illegal. When Roe was overturned, it didn't make abortion illegal. It just turned it back to the citizens of the United States. I thought about this for decades. See, Roe was decided when I was a junior in high school. And in Texas, I was heavily involved in forensics and debate when I was in high school. Even though I was blessed to be a successful debater, my, my primary event that I was most known for among Texas high schools was an event called extemporaneous speaking. And in Texas, the way UIL was set up in those days, there were two legs of extemp. There was extemp, extemporaneous informative and extemporaneous persuasive. Guess, guess which one was my event. <laughs> but here's the way extemp worked in tournaments. I'd walk into a tournament, walk into a room before I was scheduled to speak or on the docket. And one of the judges would have a hopper of topics that I could not, I would have to pick blindly. I could pick three topics, then select one after I read what they were. And I would have 25 minutes to prepare a seven and a half minute speech. That was my event. Well, as I said a few moments ago, Roe took three years to work through the courts. And in those days, I would have been a freshman and sophomore while it was working through. So as I would go to tournaments at universities and different schools in Texas, I often got the topic of abortion. And this question that I'm posing to you, I can remember making speeches on when I was 16, 15, 14. What is it about, what is it about abortion that makes so many not want the citizens to have a voice. I'll tell you what I thought then and what I think now. And it's been a few years since I've been in high school. I believe there's something deep inside the psyche of any feeling human heart who knows there's something wrong with killing a baby, preborn or not. And I have a lot of friends who consider themselves pro-choice or therefore abortion rights. And the one thing that I've discovered is even people who accept abortion on demand get a little queasy about pulling the lever and going on record. So it was always easier to let the judges do it for them. Maybe it's a good time for us to notice that in seven United States, 
seven states, it is legal to destroy a preborn baby right up to birth. Strange, isn't it? Days before birth, legal procedure. Days after, capital murder. I know the argument. I've dealt with it since, as I said, high school days. Well, before birth, we're talking about a fetus. After birth, we're talking about a baby. But any rational human being knows that that nomenclature is conveniently made up. I've pastored a lot of years and I've been around many, many hundreds, if not thousands of ladies who were in the stages of pregnancy. I have never met a woman yet who wanted to keep her baby who talked about it as a fetus. She would always talk about it as a baby. I remember a a charitable organization in the United States that for many years had as its slogan, be good to your baby before it's born. Now somebody could say, Mark, I consider myself a Christian. I don't agree with what you're saying. And to me, it just sounds like politics. That's fair. That's a fair statement. So if you are a Christ follower today, and understand that many are still exploring that, and, and I, I, I certainly appreciate the fact that you're here, and I want to give you room for that, for sure. But if you are a Christ follower today, the question, the quintessential question is not what does my political party say, not even what I say, not, not, not what my union says or my friends or, or people that I recreate with. The question for a Christ follower is where is God in this? That's the question. So if I had the responsibility of making the case, which I have today, I would point out that in Scripture, whenever Scripture speaks of a pregnancy, it's always in terms of the personhood of the person who will be born. Even the characteristics and the aspects of the person's life are spoken of in terms of the person who's going to be born. You find this with Samson and his parents. Jeremiah would say, you knew me when you formed me in the womb. We we saw in Psalm 139, Song for the Anxious Mind, David said, you knit me together in my mother's womb. But let's explore this on a more technical level. In the Bible, there are basically three Greek words for child. There's the word technon, which just means offspring in general. Our oldest son, Jonathan, turned 41 this week. I still refer to him as one of my kids. He is a pastor, a psychologist, and has his own growing family, but he's always one of my kids. He's a technon. He's one of my offspring. And then there's the Greek word pideon, which means little child, baby. Then there's the word brephos. Biblical language scholar W.E. Vines defines this word first. This is his first definition. As, quote, an unborn child. Now let me show you something in the Bible. We're in the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, and for all of you who know, know your Bible, you know that we're in the Christmas story. 
And in Luke chapter one, Mary has just found out from the angel that she is going to have the Christ child. Her pregnancy is just beginning, but her cousin Elizabeth is in her second trimester to steal the judge words from the judges. She's laid in her second trimester carrying John the Baptist. And Mary goes to visit her cousin. Now listen to what Elizabeth said to her. As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby, the brephos, in my womb, leaped for joy. We're talking about Elizabeth's joy? No, we're not. We're talking about the brephos, the unborn baby's joy. Kenneth Weiss in his expanded translation, which is so accurate, he has it this way. When the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the child leaped in extreme joy in my womb. Probably one of the most interesting occurrences of the word brephos in the New Testament is when Paul is writing his protege, the young preacher Timothy. And Paul writes him in 2 Timothy 3.1, ever since you were a child, not Pideon, ever since you were a brephos, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation. Evidently, Timothy's mom started giving him scripture before he came out of her womb. I never read this story that I don't think about Mary Alice's sweet mom who is with the Lord. And all the hundreds of times that my mother-in-law would say to me, Mark, I prayed for you when I was carrying Mary Alice. I cannot speak for anyone else. As I've said, I will not tell you what to do. But for Mary Alice and me, this election is the opportunity of a lifetime. For the first time since the Supreme Court took the decision out of the hands of the people. Before we were of voting age, both of us at O.D. White High School in Fort Worth, Texas. For the first time in our lives, we have the opportunity to step into a voting booth, take our souls in one hand and our lever in the other, and return this decision to the people and we will vote yes. But now this sermon is going to take a very strange turn because for a few moments, I wanna talk to us who are Christ followers. And I can't speak to churches outside of New Spring. I know that Sometimes we have people who attend from other churches around the country. There are people who watch us all over the world. This is primarily a Kansas issue. But I would not have authority in any other church. But I especially want to talk to New Spring. And you New Springers who've been with us for a long time on our journey, you know what I'm already about to say. But I know that God continues to grow us. And I want us all to be able to understand what our responsibilities are scripturally. There is something much bigger than this election. And this time the issue is not with people outside faith. The issue is with us. As I drive the streets of Wichita and part of Kansas, I know where many of us stand. And that's fine. But I hear very little of why. 
I mean, I, I hear the political ramifications, but here's my question for us. How good are we at explaining why we believe what we believe to people who don't agree with us? As I said a few moments ago, where's the discussion? Where's the dialogue? Just shooting straight with you today, what I hear a lot of today is people who believe a position talking to other people who agree with them, and there's something of an echo chamber going on. As you've already, if you're new to New Spring today, you've already picked up the fact that I'm from Texas, although going on 38 years here has made me a Kansan. I've lost most of my accent except for the long A's. They always give me away. But I am from Texas, and ever since I've been a little boy, I've watched the Texas OU game. Even when I don't even care, I just watch it. It's just part of my year. The thing about the Texas OU game is it's not in Austin and it's not in Norman. It's in Dallas at the Texas State Fairgrounds it's, or in Cowboys Stadium. It's half, Arlington or Dallas is halfway between Norman and Austin. And unlike any other game that I know of that has a home side and an away side, Half the stadium is always burnt orange and half the stadium is always crimson and, and uh, cream. And the one thing I've noticed through the years is that all the, pretty much all the Texas side sits with its group and all the Oklahoma side sits with their group and they don't talk to each other except to yell at each other. Well, that might be fine for sports and politics, but it's not okay for Christ followers. God never told us to yell at people that we don't agree with. Our job is to build bridges. Our job is to build bridges to people who don't agree with God and to make the case. I speak at seminaries and I talk to pastors all the time. And, and the thing about it is, when I talk to pastors, they get it. When I talk to seminaries, it's kind of like, it's sort of like this. But there's something I try to show communicators, especially guys, guys and people who will stand before people and teach God's word. When you go to the book of Acts chapter 17, which ultimately will be with Paul's message on Mars Hill at the Areopagus where all the intelligentsia met. But before we get to Mars Hill, where Paul is, he's playing an away game. The people there don't agree with anything he has to say. Early in that chapter, the Bible is going to tell us what Paul's MO is, about how he teaches, about how he tries to communicate the truth. And for those of you who are perceptive and you watch me speak at New Spring, you'll know this is something I try to do every week. Look at these three verbs, or these three verb forms. Acts 17.2, as usual, or some translations will say, as was his habit, Paul went to them and reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. So think about those three words, reasoned, explaining, and proving. What is the word reason? What, what does that mean? Well, the Greek word there that the Bible uses for reason is the word dialegami. What do you think is the English word that comes from that? Dialogue, dialogue. See, Paul didn't just walk in and say, hey, you bunch of people are going to hell. And he didn't do that. In dialoguing, you, you build a bridge. 
And I just think whatever your viewpoint is, if you want to communicate your viewpoint to someone else, it starts with dialogue. It starts with building a bridge. Because see, here's the thing. A bridge is never needed unless there's a gap. If there's no gap, you can lay a road. You don't need a bridge. You need a bridge where a gap exists. And I could teach on that all day long. That's true in a marriage. It's true in a home and family. It's true at work. true with friends. I teach on that in the corporate world. But a bridge is needed because there's a gap. And let me ask you a question. Do you pick the widest expanse to build a bridge or the closest, the most narrow expanse? Jesus is a prime example of this. <laughs> no, you, no two humans were further apart than the Samaritan woman and Jesus. And yet, where did Jesus build the bridge? She came for water. Jesus said, may I have a drink? A bridge. So the first thing Paul did was he built bridges. He dialogued. And then the second thing, and this is what's so critical, and this is what I don't hear in so many churches today, he explained. If you have a viewpoint, explain. Explain. And then finally, he did prove, or as one translation says, allege. And this is interesting, because the Greek word there means to lay side by side. In other words, he looked at one viewpoint side by side with the other viewpoint and called for a conclusion. Now watch how he does this on Mars Hill. Because on Mars Hill, Paul is not, he's not in a synagogue. He's not with religious people. He is with the elite intelligentsia of the world in Athens, which is the cultural center of the world. And it's, <laughs> and it kind of reminds me of the elite of today, even though they were brilliant people, they had all kinds of gods and they were confused and messed up on those. Now let's read. In verse 16 of Acts 17, same chapter that we saw what his MO was, the Bible says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue, he talked to religious people, as well as in the marketplace. It's just people that came from every area of life. With those, listen, this is beautiful, with those who happen to be there. Now watch how Paul does things. When he begins to talk on, at the Areopagus on Mars Hill, when he begins to talk to the people, the first thing he did, he, he built a bridge, he dialogued, watch the language, men of Athens. I noticed that you're very religious in every way. Well, they had like 59 altars to 59 gods on top of the Areopagus. I mean, he could have walked in and said, you bunch of heathen are worshiping idols. But he said, man, when it comes to religious, you guys are acing this thing. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of the altars had this inscription on it, to the unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. How's that? Now he begins to explain. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he's Lord of heaven and earth, does, he doesn't live in man-made temples. He himself gives life and breath to everything. From one person, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he's not far from any of us. For in him... This God, this unknown God you're worshiping, in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, what some of their poets said, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen. Now watch as Paul turns the corner and calls for a conclusion. Verse 30. 
God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him, for he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, Jesus, and he has proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. But New Spring, I want you to watch something. He doesn't call for a decision until he first builds a bridge and explains why he believes what he believes. What were the results? Look at verse 32. Some laughed in contempt. Fair point. There would be some who just shrugged it off and said, no, I don't believe that, and even laughed at him. That's always been the case. But watch this. Others said, we want to hear more about this. Why? Because he took time to build a bridge. He took time to understand. He took time to explain. And he made the case. Christ followers, especially New Springers, if people out there in the marketplace only hear our position and nothing else, the conversation is shut down before it starts. And in that context, truth and rightness lose. I hate to say it, but I think that's been the MO for a lot of what's been called the religious right for the last 40 years. There are many good things that have happened as people have gotten involved. And I, I, would, I love it. We have new springers who are involved in public service. So I wish many of you would be. But I think there's been an echo chamber to some extent. And the demographics are now against us. One of the news organs that was publicizing this uh, or, or talking about this coming election gave the demographic breakdown, age demographic breakdown. 75% of young adults see themselves voting no. And it's because I think very few explanations about why we believe what we believe have been made. Just, and I have, like I say, I have many dear friends who consider themselves pro-choice. I always wonder when I talk with them, I wonder could they still be pro-choice if they watched an abortion? As they saw a doctor pull out a leg and another leg and an arm and another arm and a torso and a head and lay them over here to make sure all the pieces were together. Could they still? There's something about thinking through that. That's the reason why after World War II was over, it's the reason why our American military took the Weimar citizens and made them go through Buchenwald and look at the ovens and look at the emaciated bodies of those who were imprisoned and the dead bodies of those who have been killed. See, as long as it was out of sight, it was out of mind. It was a political decision, but when they walked through Buchenwald, it was very clear. And I, I just wonder if that would be the case if those who are pro-choice would watch an actual abortion. Finally today, as I close out the message, and you know where I stand and what Mary Alice and I plan to do, I want to remind us all at New Spring that although laws are important, 
Laws can't change hearts. And I'm going to say something right now. And I know for some, this may be your last service at New Spring. But I want to tell you, if this election is more important to you than the gospel, you and I cannot walk together. As important as these issues are, if anything is more important to you than the gospel, we are not of the same tribe. Because politics cannot change people's hearts. I can't expect someone who doesn't have the Holy Spirit living inside to think like God thinks. Our job one is to get people to know Jesus Christ because when Jesus Christ moves into the life, then suddenly there's a whole new vision. And that's why at New Spring Church, our, our job one is always getting people to know Jesus Christ. And then we will teach. But there are some Christians that I run into, and I'm just being very blunt today. I'm so, I run into Christians today who these hot button issues on which I agree totally. They are so far in the front and center and the gospel of Jesus Christ is way down here. They will engage in all kinds of activism, but we could never get them to volunteer in kids world. <laughs> I know what you thought when you begin to hear this message. It's like Mark's going to talk to them. Well, Mark's going to talk to us. Do you realize that not even God's laws can change a heart? The Bible tells us the laws of the Lord are perfect and they turn, they turn people around. They help us know that we need God. But the Bible tells us this in the book of Galatians chapter three, those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. But the scriptures say, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all these commands that are written in God's book of the law. Consequently, it is clear that no one can ever be right with God by trying to keep the law. That's God's law. For the scriptures say it is through faith that a righteous person has life. Listen, you know what I, I, I believe in being, I believe in being a good steward. I believe in doing everything I can to make a difference in our world. You know that I've made the case for that, but I want you to know there is no law that the state of Kansas can pass or the United States, the United States government can pass. There is no law that can do what the Bible talks about in second Corinthians chapter five, verse seven, because it says anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. You say, Mark, would you like that I would vote the way you would? Well, for the future of our state and our nation, yes, I would. But I'll tell you what I want more than that. I want you to become a new person in Jesus Christ. I mean, that next line says the old is gone and a new life has begun. When a new life begins, a new brain comes in. We begin to think differently. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. It's not a result of keeping certain laws. It's a gift of God. And God has given us the task of changing the political landscape. No. God has given us the task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave to us this wonderful message of reconciliation. Only the good news has the power 
to change hearts. And that's why the good news, as long as I'm pastor of New Spring Church and God gives me a sound mind, the good news will always be job one around this place. Well, it's time for me to close, and thank you for listening today. And someone could say, Mark, I disagree with you totally. First of all, thank you for being here. Thank you for just being part of the dialogue. As I said, I don't want to jam anybody. I just want you to think with me. But I want to go somewhere else. Because among the thousands who are gathered here today, and the multiplied thousands who will watch this message, there will be those who will say, Mark, I had an abortion. Maybe several. Can God forgive that? And the answer is yes. He can forgive anything. Your sin, yours, 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 mine, yours. He can forgive anything. I really do believe that in all of our lives there's something really ugly, something that we don't talk about, maybe never share with anybody else. And when we wake up at three o'clock in the morning and we think about facing God, it's like, can I ever be forgiven for that? I want you to understand God can forgive anything in your past. If it's abortions, if it's an affair, if it's some kind of cruelty, if it's some kind of dishonesty, if you will come by faith to the foot of the cross and see the Son of God there with his arms suspended and the blood coming out of his hands and feet and brow, and if you will lay that down at his feet, where the blood fell. He can forgive you of anything. You can lay that shame down at his feet and turn around and walk away, not acquitted, but innocent, because you have given it to him. And his shoulders are broad, and his blood can, and you say, Mark, prove that to me from the scriptures. 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from, look at the next word, all sin. All. God can forgive you for anything as long as your heart is reachable. There are those whose stubbornness takes their heart out of God's reach. God cannot do anything for you. But as long as you will make your heart reachable to God, you can be washed clean from anything. And don't we all need that starting with your pastor? That is why the good news is more important than anything else. I'd like for you to bow your head with me for just a moment. If you're here today and you say, Mark, I don't know that I'm okay with God. 
how do I get okay with God? See that word a few moments ago where the Bible says God has given us the word of reconciliation? In other words, we have the plan through the word of God about how to be reconciled with God. And here is the plan. You and our sinners, God loves us very much. He knew we could never pay for our sins. The only way we can pay for sins is to spend an eternity in hell. God didn't want that for anybody. And so he sent his son into the world, his perfect son, Jesus. He lived a perfect life that we can't live and then turned around and paid the penalty for every one of our sins. And what God asks for us, from us is to believe, to put, our confidence, to put our confidence in Christ, that he is qualified and adequate to live the life for us that we can't live and then pay the price for our sins. And then three days later, he walked out of his grave and he's king of heaven and earth. And anyone who will put his or her confidence in Christ can be forgiven, washed clean, adopted into God's family. You say, Mark, how do I do that? How do you receive any gift? You just reach out and accept. Which is why the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so if you're here, if you're watching online, watching on television, you say, Mark, I want this to happen in my life. It can happen right now in an instant. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And I'll pray each line independently, slowly rather. And you can decide if you want to pray this to God. You don't have to pray out loud. You can pray in your heart. Dear God, I am a sinner. But I believe you love me very much. I believe Jesus died for my sins on the cross. I believe he arose from the grave. And since Jesus is alive, I want Jesus to be my savior and my Lord. With your help, I turn from my old way of life and I turn to follow Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. Hold tight with me for a few more seconds. If you just prayed with me, whether you're online or if you're here in the house, I have a gift for you. It's a Bible like I preach from, a book called My New Walk with God that answers a lot of questions. If you will text here or there, if you will text PRAY, P-R-A-Y-A-D to 97,000. If you're watching online, just follow the steps and we'll mail it to you. If you're here in the house, you can get this and leave with it right now at any info center. Just go back and say, I pray with Mark. Thanks for being here. God bless. We'll see you next weekend. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.